the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Yes, it is, and welcome back. As I was mentioning in the previous segment before the top of the hour break, Brandon J. Weikert was coming right up, and he is here. He is the author of Winning Space, How America Remains a Superpower, a geopolitical analyst who publishes The Weikert Report. W-E-I-C-H-E-R-T, theweikertreport.com is the website. It's totally free, and it keeps you up to date on all that Brandon is up to. I hope you're well, sir. Brandon, welcome back. How are you? I'm doing just fine. Um, I'm doing just fine, but I kind of, I was reading a report in the Wall Street Journal Brandon and you you'll scold yeah. me for this. I um I, I I was unaware not of the goings on between Iran and the United States to strike a nuclear deal in Vienna yeah. as they're attempting. I was caught unaware as how much Iran is giving us the hand, how much they don't want to be directly negotiating with us, how much we yeah. are trying to entreat them to sit at the table and give us a deal. I didn't realize how much we were pushing for this and how little they seemed to be interested in it. Well, that's right. Well, you can't be blamed for knowing because the media has done a very good job in the West of not reporting it. Okay. Um, Everybody knows that Biden is going to give the store away to the Islamists in Iran. Um, And the Islamists in Iran understand that as well. Uh, Remember what former President Trump said about negotiating with Persians, who are Iranians. Um, He said they're tough. This goes back thousands of years. Iranian rulers have always been very good at playing hardball. They could have a horrible hand uh, that they're playing, but they will bluff their way through. And this is part of Iran's game. And the Democrats, going back to Jimmy Carter, have a problem where they take the Iranians at face value, uh, Khomeini bluffed his way into power. Uh, uh, you know, under Barack Obama, the, uh, the, the uh, Khomeini, the current Ayatollah, and at the time Rouhani, the former president of Iran, dubbed a moderate who wasn't, were very good at bluffing and bullying Obama to get him to give away the store with the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. And Biden's doing the same thing. The Iranian leadership knows the deal is all but done. They know that Biden will do whatever he can to get a deal. And so they're going to squeeze him for all the change they can get out of him. Uh, And uh, not only are they going to get their nuclear deal, but they're probably going to get a great trade deal. They're probably going to get, you know, all kinds of favorable status coming out of this. And also, by the way, Russia and China have their back as never before because Biden's picking fights with Moscow and Beijing right now. And there's, we're feeling the pressure. And, um, and, and the Iranians know that we are led by an idiot and um, it's not going to end well for us. I have to tell you, there must be 
volumes written, volumes about the folly of engaging in negotiations <laughs> where the stronger party is begging and cajoling the weaker party to come to a deal that they don't want to accept and have us as the ones who are willing to open up the cupboards and give everything to them just so that right. we can get a deal. I have right. to believe that this is something that has been written about since before the Treaty of Westphalia. <laughs> well, it has been. Uh, and, um, you know, my forthcoming book, The Shadow War, uh, Iran's Quest for Supremacy, if I can just plug my work yeah. here, yeah. Uh, we, you know, I have... I'd say about 60% of the book is dedicated to taking the, taking the Democrats, because it's usually the Democrats, taking Jimmy Carter, Barack Obama, and Joe Biden to task for this sort of, you know, any deal is a good deal approach to what is probably the most important geopolitical issue, certainly in the Middle East uh, today, and uh, the Iranians know that they have a deal. They know that no matter what, they're walking out with a deal. So they're going to do whatever they can to squeeze us, and it's going to work because Biden wants out of the Middle East at all costs, no matter what it costs uh, him, um, and he wants to be able to tell the American people, I have a deal. And I ended the wars in Iraq, and I ended the war not in Iraq, but in Afghanistan. He doesn't care about the details, and the devil's in the details, of course. He just wants to be remembered as the guy who got a deal with Iran, even though it's going to let them have nuclear weapons. It's going to let them, basically, it's going to trigger an arms. It's going to start the very thing that Biden has been saying he wants to avoid, which is a nuclear arms race. At another war, but Iran's going to think coming out of Vienna, oh, we've got this thing. Let's let's let her rip. And the Saudis are then going to start their own nuclear weapons program. They're going to go at breakneck speed. The Israelis have already gone off on uh, Joe Biden this this morning and yesterday, uh, and so Israel's going to probably take some decisive, drastic action to keep us involved, even if it means initiating a war. So all the things that Biden's supposedly trying to avoid by doing this deal with Iran, he's actually precipitating the very event that he's supposedly going to be avoiding with this deal, which is a major Middle Eastern war, which sucks in the great powers, uh, the United States, Russia, and China, and probably triggers a nuclear world war, which is what I'm worried we're heading toward very quickly right now. See, it seems to me, uh, thank you for that analysis, Brandon, it seems to me that when it comes to international diplomacy, you want the um, the weaker party, you want them coming to you. You want them begging you. You want them right. entreating you. I remember right. during the Soviet Union's last days or last decade, in uh, 1984, so the end of Reagan's first term, was winding down, and George Shultz was then the Secretary of State testifying before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, chaired by one Paul Songus of Massachusetts, Democrat. And I remember right. Paul Songus saying to uh, Secretary Shultz, do you realize you'll be the first administration since World War II that hasn't had face-to-face -face meetings with the Soviet Union? And God bless George Shultz. Do you know what he said, Brandon? He said, 
three words. He said, so be it. So be right. it. It seems, right. it seems to me that it's um, the regime that has the most to lose that begs right. for these kinds of things. And, boy, I got to tell you, as between Iran and the United States, I didn't think we were the one who had the most to lose. Well, Joe Biden and the Democrats have the most to yeah. lose. Yeah, okay. Okay. Joe Biden and the Democrats have the most to lose. And that's the key. So It's a political um, battle. It's a political battle in what in what you're discussing that they want a political victory for this. The funny thing is of all his promises Joe Biden made to turn around everything to upside turn upside down or, you know, reverse everything Trump did, I don't get a large sense or even a small sense from the largeness of the American people that this is what they're clamoring for. I spent a lot of time in social situations, Brandon. You probably do, too. When's the last time anyone went up to you and said, boy, I wish Joe Biden would, would fulfill that promise on a nuclear deal with Iran? I have never heard that <laughs> sentence. Um, well, the Democrats that I know think this is this needs to happen okay and so they're all excited they think that this is a good thing they think the republicans are crazy they think that we're warmongers because we haven't done this before so the democrats that i know and i know a lot of democrats they think this is brilliant give it a chance give peace a chance and so that's that's where the left is there's no consensus on this issue among the left and the right in, in america or in the West in general. And, uh, you know, it's going to set us up for a really rude awakening when Iran reveals they've got these nukes and they're going to start deploying them. And even without nukes, they're already going out and being offensive in the Middle East. Once the nukes are, are allowed to be gotten openly by Iran under this deal, Saudi Arabia is then going to do a breakout thing. Then the Israelis are going to start doing This is going to do everything that we don't want to happen in the Middle East. It's going to happen. And about the whole thing about not meeting with Iran, um, you know, a deal would be nice, a real deal. But as Reagan said when he was running for office in 1980, they asked him, they said, hey, why are you so against uh, building bridges to the Soviet Union? Reagan looked at the uh, interviewer and he said, I'm all for building bridges, but when you build a bridge, you have to start at both sides and meet in the middle. And I'm not going to be the one doing all the work to meet the Soviets and, and not get what we need out of it. And that's the same thing it should be with Iran. That's the exact same logic. Yeah, we'll build bridges, but they've got to meet us middle way, and we've got to be able to walk away with a real deal. The Iranians don't want a deal. They want the nukes at all costs, and that's the fact. Brandon Weikert is our guest. We have to take a quick break. He's happy to take your questions, too. 602-508-0960. We'll be right back. Brandon J. Weikert is our guest, foreign policy expert, but also domestic politics as well, and political philosophy, just for an added extra measure of intelligence. He is the publisher of the Weikert Report. Also, we often uh, refer to his book from last year, Winning Space, How America Remains a Superpower. Uh, I think it's fair to say that uh, Brandon and I are both... um, Claremont Institute adjacent, if not closer. Uh, We like the Claremont Institute and a lot of the folks there. They lost a foreign policy scholar recently, Angelo Cotavilla, C-O-D-E-V-I-L-L-A. He died too soon. I was reading some tributes 
to him. And uh, the common theme is that we lost him just when we needed him most, just as the world was getting crazier and crazier, including the vacuum of leadership in the United States. I thought I'd run by Brandon, who knew him a little bit, too, uh, if he might just say a word. We, 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 praise, we tra- praise good people here, Brandon, and say right. something about intelligence, foreign policy, and the, and the loss of this great scholar, Angelo Cotavilla. Well, uh, Angelo was larger than life. Now, I, I want to make it clear to your audience, I knew him a little bit. I didn't know him the way the people at Claremont did. I didn't know him the way that our friend Julie Ponzi did, or, or even my publisher, Al Regnery, who has known him for 30 years. Uh, but he and I had interacted a little bit before last year uh, at some Claremont events in D.C. We had a lot of similar friends, uh, people that we knew in our social circle. He was familiar with me. I, I was a fan of his work, and he liked some of my work. Uh, of course, he told me what he liked and didn't like. Uh, but uh, he was just a, a larger-than-life figure. Uh, he served this country. He came, if you, you know, the obituary in the American mind, the obituary for him in the Claremont Review of Books really gives you this very full picture of a man born into nothing who came from war-torn Italy in '43, came to the United States with nothing on his back, and fought and worked hard and became one of the top intellectuals and national security policy at a very young age. Um, and he, you know, even you, you agree or disagree, this guy, this guy was a force of nature. Uh, he was brilliant. He was funny. He was tough. He was a tough old bird. Uh, but he, he knew his stuff, and he was somebody that the movement and uh, our country, in my opinion, um, was, was better with rather than without. And unfortunately, he was taken. Now, he was an old man, but he was killed in an, you know, an unfortunate accident and uh, you know, taken too soon in many ways because he was really flowering as a writer and uh, getting much greater public notoriety in the last probably five to seven years uh, than he had before. He wrote some wonderful books, though, uh, I knew him as a missile defense expert. He really wrote uh, one of the first books on uh, moral, yeah. moral justification of missile defense. Yep, you that's know. exactly right. Yeah. It was always with him, not just the national interest, but there was a moral component, and he was very articulate about that. And, and I got to know him beyond just these social interactions because I sent him the manuscript for my book, Winning Space. Uh, my publisher, Al Regnery, was very good friends with was very good friends with um, uh, Angelo, and he thought it would be good to get us together. Um, and Angelo, in the last year of his life, gave his time and, for nothing. I mean, I wasn't getting paid. Wasn't, I mean, he, we, we didn't really know each other all too well, um, but he spent a good six months reviewing my manuscript uh, and telling me what was wrong with it and telling me what was right and and giving of his time, which when you're that age and you've got other things going on, that that really meant the world to oh, me. I bet. And I really, I really appreciate it because there's a section in the book on China's laser program to, to create these anti-satellite weapons that he really helped me and guided me with some of the research. And I just, I, I feel very honored that he gave even the short amount of time that he did, and it was mostly through email because it was during COVID. Sure. Uh, you know, it was just, it, he's a really wonderful person and a, and a real 
real fierce intellect. And even when I disagreed with him, and there were things that I'm not going to recount what they are, there are things that we disagreed on, but I just, I, I always got something out of the exchanges with him in terms of, you know, uh, intellectual and personal, uh, positive sort of thing that I got from him. And I, obviously he enjoyed our interactions enough to give his time the way he did to this project. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it, it's just sad that he went when he did because really he was giving voice to a lot of issues uh, in a very articulate way, in a very unique way uh, that very few of us could have done. And his years and decades in government working in the national security space, having that clearance level that he did, he was able to have a lot of influence over the course of the United States. And the places that he didn't have influence, uh, you know, were things that w- w- did not go well for the country. Yeah, I was going to say they you know? were fa- yeah, failures. Yeah, You want to talk about having an impact. This guy, probably many of your audience, they might be familiar with him because he was getting published in American Greatness. Um, that was a very widely read magazine. But before that, many in your audience might never have heard of him. Uh, but he was really just brilliant. And uh, he really had a lot of influence. You know, he had reach everywhere. Um, and uh, a lot of a lot of a lot of things were influenced and impacted by him and his writing and his his thought. And uh, like I said, where he didn't have an impact, the country suffered. Really. For those that want to learn more, let me uh, recommend the latest issue of the Claremont Review of Books, which has a series of tributes to him. You're 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 kind of like me in this sense, Brandon, that we were fortunate enough to uh, attend uh, schools with some great. And prominent yeah. and influential, influential professors, but then again, also schools that um, didn't have other great and prominent and <laughs> wonderful professors that we got to know separately in our professional yeah. lives. And I've often used the construction about some of them myself. Probably you're one of the few people that can do this as well or likes to. You can appreciate this maybe. I often describe them as the best teachers I never had. I think of someone like Robert George at Princeton like that or Hadley Arcus at Amherst, I think of like that. The best teachers I never had. Angelo could be maybe one of those for you, huh? Yes, yes, yeah. I never, you know, I wasn't a Claremont fellow, not yet. Maybe one day, you know, if they'll have me, I don't know. Um, uh, You know, so I didn't get to know him in that setting. But uh, like I said, initially I was living in D.C. and Claremont had events out there, and so I would go and, you know, interact with these people that I looked up to. Uh, one, one time, uh, no, I, I won't say this story. <laughs> That's all right. That's all but, right. But, you know, Angelo was a very gregarious guy in certain settings. And that's how I initially knew him was just sort of as this, you know, person I had revered reading uh, all of his work. Uh, and then, uh, you know, had the fortune to transition into a more professional, direct professional, and maybe even personal relationship um, in the last year. So, yeah, he's a great professor I never had in class, but learned so much yeah. from. Well, you're, 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 you, you, can, you can follow my path on this. I'm a little older than you, Brandon, if it <laughs> makes any difference. You're always where you're supposed to be. I got turned down. For my first application for a Claremont Fellowship, <laughs> so, yeah. so yeah. I got yeah. it the second time around. You, <laughs> it's yeah. if I can get there, you can. We'll be right back. I want to touch on Russia and China with Brandon when yeah. we come back. We will be right mm-hmm. back.
Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Brandon J. Weikert is our guest. He's the publisher of the Weikert Report. I have said any number of times the uh, the 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 survival of the United States uh, militarily and as a force for good, physically even, uh, will happen uh, to the degree that Brandon Weikert and uh, his recommendations are accepted. I've done a deep dive into his work on this stuff. I have easily concluded that. I've also said, if you want to know the news a month before it breaks, listen to my interviews with Brandon. November 28th, which would be yesterday, Brandon, the New York Times writes this, and I heard you talking about this on the show months ago, has to do with nuclear arms race in China. And it says, Mr. Biden's aides, I'm quoting directly, are driven by concerns that a new arms race is heating up over hypersonic weapons, space arms and cyber weapons, all of which could unleash a costly and destabilizing spiral of move and counter move. The fear is that an attack that blinded space satellites or command and control systems could quickly escalate. China's capabilities can also pose a threat to President Biden's hopes for reducing the role of nuclear weapons in America's defenses. Why, one might ask, because China is looking to build somewhere between 1,000 and 1,500 more warheads. And it's not just the number of weapons, as they point out. It's the technology. Um, You've been talking about this, really, I mean, on this show for months, before that, for years. Uh, Brandon, I remember when the United States wanted to build nuclear weapons, people from Europe to the United States marched in protest wearing skeletons and gas masks. I presume no one's marching over the 1,500 warheads China wants to build. Oh, no. No, no, no. If you do that in China, you get killed. Yep. Um, You know, and and let's face it. um, And if you do it in Germany... Uh, they won't because they don't care. It's only when the U.S. builds weapons right. that they care about. Right. Okay, understood. Right. Uh, you know, the useful idiots on the American left uh, will not brook American greatness. They want us to always be uh, on the lookout and afraid and second or even third to other uh, more aggressive powers uh, because, you know, we're imperialists or we have a history of evil or or whatever you know mm-hmm. that, what you know that's that's the bottom line is on some level um, these these people on the left and we now are being led by them uh, they they hate America as it is and they want to see America diminished because it's just not fair uh, or whatever and uh, so they don't you know they don't want to see us let's just let's just look at it this way we could have had real clean, limitless, abundant uh, energy in this country 50 years ago with nuclear power. Mm-hmm. And it was the left who killed it. Mm-hmm. And now today I'm reading, and I've, been, I've talked to you about this for months as well, and I wrote about this in my book, China is leading the world not just in nuclear reactor construction, but now they are leading the world in nuclear fusion development, something that the left has always panned. I remember Obama, one of the senior Obama, former Department of Energy people, uh, going on Morning Joe about two years ago, renouncing his previous support uh, for nuclear fusion and nuclear traditional nuclear fission, saying that it was too dangerous. Well, China's got the hottest burning 
uh, nuclear fusion tokamak reactor. And by the way, China announced that within the next year, they will be putting dozens of nuclear reactors in space to power future space missions, um, which technically is an act of war because those nuclear reactors could easily be turned into nuclear bombs and dropped on us from orbit. But has the Pentagon or has the Biden administration said anything? No. No. Has the media asked any questions? No. No, of course not. Well, this, they're all in the this is this because guy. what the U.S. has done is drawn what you wrote in an op-ed in the Dallas Morning News is a Maginot line, which I'm not okay. sure people know what that means anymore, <laughs> but it was supposedly <laughs> France's deterrence <laughs> against Germany, right? right? Right, right. It was the shield behind which France could hide and would not need to be so focused on war after the First World War. Let me let me and, pause you there. This is yeah. a big one, and we're going to teach some people some stuff here. Uh, let me hit the commercial break. Let's pick up on all this in relationship to your op-ed on America's Maginot Line in space. Can we do that real quick when we I'd come back? I'd love to, yeah. I'm Seth. He's Brandon. We will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Little Glenn Campbell for you. Brandon J. Weikert is our guest. He is the publisher of the Weikert Report, theweikertreport.com, free website that doesn't invade you with all kinds of pop-ups and things that you have to try and find X's to. He's also the author of Winning Space, How America Remains a Superpower, his book on Iran coming out next Year, but your column on the Maginot Line in space, uh, Brandon, uh, remind yes. people of what the Maginot Line is and, and why you're talking about America's Maginot Line. Yeah, of course. Well, uh, basically, uh, after the First World War, the French were convinced that the Germans were not going to stop being a threat, even though they had defeated the Germans uh, with our help. Uh, but the, the French also were war-weary, and so they wanted to find this kind of perfect solution where they could defend adequately their country from another German invasion, while at the same time not having to commit the whole country to a war footing. Uh, and so they came up with, and actually, contrary to what many people say, think, um, the Maginot Line was actually very sophisticated engineering. It was a series of interconnected concrete bunkers and steel-reinforced facilities that basically divided their border from Germany. Uh, and it was manned by French troops with best with great weapons. Uh, and basically it was designed to be an unstoppable, excuse me, an, an unbreakable barrier again that, that the potential German invasion would hit and completely dissolve and be defeated without ever stepping foot on French territory. They basically in France took all of the experiences and all of the lessons learned uh, from the First World War and applied it in this development of the, the, the Maginot Line because they assumed any another war with Germany would be just like the First World War where it would be this sort of static battle of, of trench warfare, germ warfare, bioweapons. And so this wall was designed to mitigate that significantly. And had the Second World War been identical to the First World War, it is likely that with the Maginot Line, France would have been spared the German onslaught. Unfortunately for the French, uh, losing can be, a, uh, you know, a teacher all of its own. And the Germans lost badly in the First World War, and they applied their own lessons. And they said, you know, we're not going to do the static 
war of attrition. We're gonna we're gonna embrace the airplane. We're gonna embrace armor, uh, you know, tanks and armored vehicles, and we're gonna outmaneuver. We're gonna embrace the maneuver warfare, uh, the blitzkrieg, the lightning war. And so, rather than going at France, they said, "Aha! The National Line stops at France's border uh, with Belgium." And uh, the French didn't build near Belgium because of the Ardennes forest. And they figured, well, no human force could get through the Ardennes. The Germans tried previously, and that's what got them bogged down. So they won't be able to do it again. Well, with the tank and the airplane and the armored personnel carrier, uh, the Germans, the Nazis, were able to do just that. They completely outmaneuvered this expensive, beautiful, uh, you know, Maginot line uh, and punched into Paris and then circled back after taking the capital in France uh, and pushing the British out of, out in the sea. They then circled back and basically, uh, you know, locked all the French soldiers that were manning the wall in the, in, the, in the barricades. They basically turned that defensive perimeter into a prison, a prisoner of war camp. Uh, and, and that was a record victory for any country against a major power like France. And the Maginot Line was completely ineffectual, did nothing. The um, the most important lines, or at least the ones I found most important in your op-ed, may I read them to you? Please. America's national defense. Oh, good, good, good. America's <laughs> national defense is predicated upon the lessons learned from the previous century of conflict. Yet, in an age of radical and exotic military technologies, where the United States is no longer the only technological dominant state. America is not well defended. As the United States continues behaving as though its national defenses are impenetrable, China continues expanding its capabilities to threaten right. America, I might add, and show that they are indeed penetrable. Right. Right. And that, that's, the, that's my concern, is our air defense network, you and I have spoken about this yep. before, our air defense network is primed for defending against a Soviet-style ICBM nuclear missile attack. They are not primed against defending the country from an omnidirectional uh, Chinese hypersonic uh, uh, missile attack that could come, as it says, from any direction, that could completely evade detection because our air defense systems are only tracking mostly west to east, east to west, not north-south, yep. south-north. Mm -hmm. And the, the, the vehicle in question is moving so fast a uh, minimum of 3,800 miles an hour, uh, that, and, and it can be deployed into orbit and, and orbit the Earth uh, for months, maybe even years, uh, before actually coming down over their target, uh, it's almost impossible to defend against, not without space-based defenses, which is something that gets us back to Angelo Cotavia, who was one of the early proponents of space-based missile defense. Um, and it never, if you'll pardon the expression, got off the ground because of those peaceniks on the left who said you can't weaponize space. Well, guess what, buddy? Um, Angelo and Reagan were right. <laughs> we should have had, and Brian Kennedy as well, we should have had space-based defenses decades ago. And if we had them, the hypersonic missile threat wouldn't be non-existent because we would be able to have greater situational awareness and the ability to intercept those hypersonic missiles in space before they ever got near their targets on Earth. But because we didn't do this, because we're coming 30 years behind, China is ahead of us. And our own hypersonic uh, weapon systems that we're trying to build have been mired in development hell for the last three decades. 
because they're not properly resourced. They're not led by the right kinds of leaders, either in the military or in the civilian side. And uh, the, the most recent test that they did a few weeks ago of our system was a disaster. It was a joke. And meanwhile, China has working versions. They're building even more advanced, bigger, more lethal versions in the real world. It's not just on the computer anymore that they're simulating it. They're actually deploying these systems in the world, real world and testing them. And so the Chinese are ahead of us in so many ways. And uh, our systems of defense for the homeland, I'm not even talking about bases overseas or our ships. I'm talking about the homeland, are, are so inadequate and antiquated compared to this threat that it's only a matter of time before China says the Americans are weak and vulnerable. They're not going to let us have Taiwan peacefully. So we're going to have to punch them in the nose to send them stumbling back. And we're going to do that by attacking them in the face with anti-satellite weapons and attacking them on the home front with these hypersonic weapons. And that is exactly what's going to happen, I fear, very soon. You made, you made an interesting historical point, Brandon. I'll let you go on this one for consideration. Maybe we address it in a, in a bit next week. But yeah. I, I came of political acuity in the 70s and 80s, and I remember an awful lot of no-nukes marches. I remember an yeah. awful lot of talk about the non-proliferation treaty. From Western Europe to here, protests and mass, huge numbers of protests, not one not one against the Soviet Union and not one then or now against China, only against America. Isn't that telling? Yeah. I'll leave yeah. it there. We'll pick it up next week. Brandon Weikert, Godspeed and God bless. Thank you, sir. Talk to you next week. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Rob, and surprise, I hope you had a great Thanksgiving, sir. How are you? Uh, I am fine. I did have a fine Thanksgiving, and um, I didn't even have to cook, which makes it even better, and I hope you did, too. Sir. Well, it made um, it better I mean, because I did cook. It made it better because well, I did. Yeah, I hate to say it, but it turns out I'm a pretty good cook. Well, it turns out I am, too. We may have to have a cook Yeah, we may have we to. We may uh, have to. Yeah, you know. Get on beat Bobby Flay or something. Uh, yeah, the, yeah, the yeah, yeah. <laughs> or we can just have a, well, what we would call a non-station event, just so that Jim Ryan doesn't get upset. But we may have to do that. Well, yeah. that that's fine too. Okay. I was um, I was interested in, in listening to Brandon, and again, I there's very little I can disagree with him on, and I I have the same sort of fear uh, that he has, and again, I I think. You know, I'm reminded about uh, Winston Churchill's while while uh, England slapped. Um, I'm reminded also about JFK actually wrote a book while he was still at Harvard, I think, called Why England Slapped. Yep. And then there was an article a couple of weeks ago that was on some website I can't even recall, uh, and it says while America is sleeping. Yeah. And it's it's sort of all tied together that oh it is our uh, our that, effort is that, uh, is that, that, that guys are doing, yeah our, yeah, our effort is to prevent a book thing. called while america slept we don't want that book written no uh, at least uh, unless we can find a, an american churchill of some sort but that would have to be uh boy that would have to change the entire education system so anyway i was going through uh what i think is a mandatory book for all conservatives, which is Barry Goldwater's 
conscience of a conservative. Um, and yes, he had written it, uh, you know, back during, uh, I guess, 1960-ish when the Soviet menace was was there. And, um, you know, he mentions about uh, how our freedom has always depended uh, to a great extent on what's happening beyond our shores. Mm-hmm. And uh, he, his cha- there was a chapter 10 that talks about the Soviet menace. And I think you could just exchange uh, the word Soviet uh, with the Chinese. Um, because there's there's things in this chapter that um, he talks about. Our enemies have understood the nature of this conflict, and we have not. They're determined to win the conflict, and we are not. Yeah. And I think I think that kind of says it all. And then, you know, if an enemy power is bent on conquering you and proposes to turn all of its resources to that end, he's at war with you, yeah. and you, unless you contemplate surrender, are at war with him, whether you like it or not. Um, and I think what the problem is in D.C. is that our leaders have not made victory, this is in Goldwater's words, the goal of American policy. Um, and that uh, they've never, and many of the people in Washington never believed deeply that the communists, well, that's China. Uh, you, you, you've hit on something that's a big deal to me, actually, uh, Rob, and it's the rereading of books we once read. I, I spoke a little bit about it a couple of weeks ago. I'd like to talk more about it. Maybe I will in the next hour. That certainly should be one of them. Conscience of a Conservative, 1960, Barry Goldwater. Good point. Good reminder. We'll talk more about it. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.